As I said earlier, we come today to a text which is ground zero for the disagreement through church history of those who believe that it is right to baptize infants and those who believe that it is wrong to baptize infants. And this church is in a minority of churches in that we accept as officers in this church those who believe in infant baptism and those who reject infant baptism. For many years, I was a Presbyterian pastor in denominations that disallowed officers to reject infant baptism. The officers uh, were required to believe that infant baptism was right, but not the congregation. And so if you go to PCA, my old denomination, Presbyterian Church in America, you go to those churches around the country, you'll find that they're filled with Baptists who reject infant baptism. But they cannot be deacons, elders, or pastors. And you will also find, if you have ears to hear and eyes to see, that there are many men who are officers who reject infant baptism in the PCA. It's just a fact, because especially in the South, there's a lot of back and forth between Southern Baptist churches and PCA churches. And often, men who are very rich move from a Baptist church to a Presbyterian church, and you all know that if a man's rich, he has to be an elder. Now, as usual with my jokes, there's a little bit of truth to that and a little bit of error. The truth to that is that often Abraham is a man of great faith and is rich. The error of that is that no man should be put into a position of leading the flock who does not have his own house in order, who is open to the charge of being contentious, who is a lover of wine. And so the qualifications of scripture must trump the qualification of status in this world, including wealth, right? Nevertheless, In the South, there are many men who are pastors, elders, and deacons in the PCA who, when they said they believed in infant baptism, sort of had their fingers behind their back. And so there are men in the South who specialize in working with PCA officers to try to convince them of the biblical basis for infant baptism. And I've said this to I don't know how many PCA pastors, and privately they all say, yep, you're right. And I say, here's an idea. Our church doesn't lie about it. We have men who don't believe in infant baptism, and they're not second-class citizens, and they don't have to hide their convictions. (laughs) All right? So for that reason, this church was never in the PCA. And one time when I talked to our stated clerk, he said, well, you know, you could come into the PCA. We just grandfather in the officers you already have. And I said, But that wouldn't really be right, would it? Because you grandfather them in, and then they have to shut up. And I really don't want to tell Tim Wagner to shut up. You know? Why would you want Tim Wagner to shut up? You know? Mary Lee and I grew up in a church that is in Wheaton called College Church in Wheaton. Kent Hughes was the pastor there for years, and some British accent is the pastor there now. And I can't remember his name, Josh or Jake or something like that. What's his name? I don't know what his name is. Um, 
And it has all the leaders of evangelicalism. It's got the guy that owns Christianity Today and leadership and all that stuff, you know, Christianity Online. You know, it's got the guy that's the head of the Evangelical Alliance mission. It's got the president of Wheaton College. It's got a bunch of moody people. Not emotional. (laughs) Moody Bible Institute people. All right. Um, It's got the head of Crossway that does ESV, the head of Tyndale House that does the New Living Translation. It's got everybody. Everybody that's anything. And that church has always allowed parents to choose between infant baptism or infant dedication or nothing. There is a denomination in Scotland, I believe it's called the Free Church of Scotland, that is Presbyterian and neutral on the issue of infant baptism. Actually, throughout history, there have been many godly Reformed Christians who have been neutral about the the issue of infant baptism. All right? So we're not as weird as they say we are. We just lack deniability, you know? We have to admit what we are because we decided at the beginning that we would be exactly like a PCA church, except in our bylaws it says that every officer has freedom of conscience in time and mode of baptism. Okay? And I would say that today if I asked how many of you are credo-baptists, in other words, you believe that babies shouldn't be baptized, but baptism should be given upon profession of faith, raise your hand. Hi, hi. Now, how many of you are paedo-baptists? Raise your hand. And so what? The majority of people in this congregation right now are credo-baptists, clearly, right? And the majority of people that know what the Bible teaches (laughs) were in the first service. What? What? No, I didn't ask them, but I actually know them, with the exception of the Wegners, who are obstreperous. <laughs> I don't know what you are, Bob. What are you? What, what did he raise his hand? Is he Baptist? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jews are obstreperous. <laughs> Bob is Jewish, but he believes in the Messiah. Now, that's some of the history. If there, are, if there is one thing about this church that is abnormal, it is not what you think. It's not what you think. Everything about this church is absolutely normal in church history. Everything. Except that. The preaching that I do to your conscience is abnormal today, but forget today. Today's perverse. Look at church history, and I'm so wussy. You don't think this is true. You read sermons from the past, and you'll realize that today we're a pathetic generation. All of us are effeminate, and that's not a good thing to say about a preacher. Okay? If you think that because we believe that women should not exercise authority over men and teach them, we're unusual. You're wrong. All of church history, Protestant, Catholic, Greek, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, everybody has always agreed about that. 
because it's in the very order of creation. If you think we're weird because we do not remarry a man and a woman who have an unbiblical divorce in their background, always in history, this has been the position of the church. There have been failures to live by the truth. All right. I was reading this last week, and, and grow up, people, grow up. In understanding, be men. And yeah, I'm saying that to you women. Okay, that's a quote of scripture, in understanding, be men. It's in the King James, all right? Grow up. I was reading this last week, A History of Martin Luther, and it was near the end of the book where it was talking about how Martin Luther had to deal with a secular leader, a civil magistrate, a governmental figure, very wealthy, very influential. And the man didn't like the smell of his wife. And pretty soon, they were alienated. She was not nice. She didn't smell good. He didn't want her. And so the question was, should he divorce her and get another wife like Henry VIII was doing in England at the time? Or should he take a second wife? And so Martin Luther said, take a second wife. You didn't know that, did you? How many of you knew that? One, two, three... Three people knew that. What do you make of that? Yikes. Right? Again, I said, we're absolutely normal. We don't have multiple wives, multiple husbands. But the author went on to say, now today we look down on Luther and we live absolutely immersed in in a hypocrisy that is known as serial monogamy. In other words, today we go through the hypocrisy of going ahead and letting them get divorced and remarried and they don't get disciplined and they're in the church and nobody ever says anything to them about it. And then we look down on Luther where Luther said, you must keep the first wife, you must continue to make love to her, you must continue to provide for the children and go ahead and take a second wife. We say, oh, you better divorce her first and then hope she commits adultery so we can remarry you in church. I mean, people, this is what the church is like today. When we don't remarry people who have an unbiblical divorce, we're not abnormal. In church history, we're absolutely normal, okay? When we have elders who rebuke people, and it gets written up on a blog as if our elders are monsters and and are really into their authority, and you know it's a huge problem, the evangelical church today, how much authority elders have. I mean, people, that's an absolute ludicrous joke, right? I mean, Americans submitting to elders with authority, it's a joke. Our elders know that if they discipline or rebuke somebody, the chances are 50-50 that they'll turn their back on this church and we'll never see them again. And so our elders do it. Why? Well, it's so successful. It brings in so much money. And we just get larger and larger all the time. I'm being facetious. Our elders do it because they fear God and they love you. That's why they do it. And it kills us to do it, (laughs) right? We are not abnormal in rebuking and admonishing and correcting. The New Testament commands it. We do it. We don't do it because we think it will be successful. We do it because God commands it. And like Mother Teresa, we realize that God doesn't call us to be successful, but faithful. Okay. 
I could go on and on and on and show you the things that people think are unusual about this church. And in every single case, I can show you that this church is absolutely boring and pathetically wussy across church history. Except one thing, and that's our position on baptism. There we're weird. So if you want to think of us as weird, put your focus there. That's the only place where we're weird. Okay, our music isn't weird. I don't have the time to make the case, but it's clear those of us that have studied it. It includes a number of classical trained musicians. Our position on marriage and family, our position on eldership, our position on the pastorate, our position on money, on buildings, on worship, on liturgy. All of those things are boringly normal across church history, except our position on baptism. Now, how would I go about justifying our position on baptism, which I have to do because it is weird? Let me do it in two ways. The second way is the important way, which is to show you what Scripture teaches. The first way, though, I want to do pastorally. And I want to say that at every point in history, you can watch through church history and see that certain doctrines of Scripture are under attack. And your faith is tested at the place of attack. It's not tested at the place that is clear and firm and certain. Satan comes to the gap in the wall and tries to kill there because the wall isn't there. So he comes with a battering ram, and each generation has a different place in the wall of God's truth that is under a battering ram attack. All right? You go back to the first centuries, you see the doctrine of Christ, his humanity and his divinity and the interrelatedness. You look at the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is not three manifestations, but he eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You look at the doctrine of justification at the time of the Reformation, but really the Reformation was a huge number of things. One of the things that is not understood by Protestants is the degree to which the Reformation was a restoration of the dignity of the calling of motherhood and fatherhood and of being wives and husbands because convents and monasteries had raised singleness up to a position that those who were not godly were dirty and got married and had sex. And the Protestants said, no, the home is a church. And fatherhood is dignified. He's a nursing father. He is to train his children. His wife is a nursing mother, and she's to train her children. And so the home became a thing of beauty. There were a lot of things that went on at the time of the Reformation. All right? Today, what we have is we have a situation where the Protestant church is infinitely splintered. All right? A guy named Robert Kingdon was my professor of uh, Reformation at UW-Madison. And he got up and he began his lectures that semester by saying this. He said, the defining characteristic of Protestantism has always been schism. And my hair stood up on end. And I knew he wasn't a Roman Catholic, so he wasn't trying to get me to cross the Tiber. And I thought about it. Now, since then, I've come to the conclusion that if Protestantism is always defined by schism, Roman Catholicism 
is always defined by atomization. (laughs) In other words, if we split, the Roman Catholics are a plutonium trigger on a hydrogen bomb. I mean, you talk about being splintered into atoms. That's the Roman Catholic Church. But there's this shell game where, you know, you have to, they switch the cards and you have to guess where this card and that card is. Well, the Roman Catholics keep you busy by always talking about the Pope. And since there's one Pope, they can intimidate you into thinking they have unity. And then they talk about the magisterium. And, well, it's not magisteriums, you know. And so you can be browbeaten into, well, yes, the Roman Catholic Church is one. But has anybody been into a Roman Catholic church south of the border? Has anybody ever compared a Roman Catholic church in South America or Central America or Mexico, La Ciudad de Mexico? Have you seen that? You've seen the women crawling up the stairs on their knees at the cathedral? You've never seen that in America. In other words, Roman Catholicism in the northern and southern hemisphere absolutely radically divergent. They're different churches. They, they're syncretistic towards intellectualism in the northern hemisphere, and they're syncretistic towards voodoo and, and animism in the, in the southern hemisphere. Do you understand? And then you go to the orders. You know, you talk about the Jesuits and the Dominicans. And, and then you go to the issue of priests being predators against the children of their parishioners. And now tell me, exactly how is the Roman Catholic Church unified? And if it is unified, is it a unity you want? Okay, don't be intimidated when they say that Protestantism has been defined by schism. Roman Catholicism is defined by atomization, all right? Now, move over to the Protestantism. It is true, we are divided. Many people have called the Presbyterians the split peas, And particularly here in this city, the churches splinter and splinter. And we don't have the positive view of it that the colonial churches had. In the colonial times, when a church split, you know what they referred to it as? I've told you before, does anybody remember? They always called it swarming. And when a beehive swarms, it's a good thing. Because what happens is the hive gets bigger than its ability for a queen to take care of it. And so it automatically, by God's creation, makes a new queen. And that new queen flies off and half or a third of the bees go off with the new queen. And if you ever find what I found one time, which is a little fruit tree with a huge clump of bees on a branch... You can get a beekeeper, which I did, to come there and he'll put his hand in that swarm and he'll find the queen and he'll pick the queen out of that clump and he'll go take that queen in a new hive and he has free, a free beehive. And that's how the colonial people saw churches that split. They said they swarmed and now where there was one, there's two. Now, it's too bad today that we can't do this. We're trying to do that with Indy. We have all these people moving up to Indy from this church. They're swarming. They don't get enough care here, so they're moving up to Indy so they can get better care. Sort of. All right. And so 
At the beginning of this church, it was the conviction of the elders and the deacons and their wives that we needed in this community to have a church that would be old. And that's so scandalous to you youth-worshipping people. You know, why would you want a church that's old? Well, because Jesus has told us that we are to guard the good deposit. It's an essentially conservative act. Remember Chesterton saying that tradition is the democracy of the dead. If you object to somebody being excluded from the electoral process because he's white or black or Christian or Muslim, a traditionalist objects to somebody being robbed of his vote just because he died. And Christians always have a preferential option for their fathers in the faith. All right? And so we wanted a church in this community that would actually have accountability, admonishment, encouragement, personal care from elders. We wanted a church where the women would be free to train the younger women. We wanted a church where there would be children received and loved instead of hidden and being embarrassed about another birth. One of the couples that left this church recently, we were with them recently, and we, we with joy announced that we have 85 members that are under the age of five in this church. All right? And the woman looked at us and she said, well, if I was there, I'd change that. Okay? Okay? She was actually more negative than that. but And we love her. And moved on and acted like we hadn't heard what we just heard. Just kept talking about the blessing of children. We thought there should be a church in Bloomington where Protestants believe that children are a blessing from the Lord. <laughs> Again, boringly normal across all church history. Boringly normal practice of eldership. Boringly normal practice of Titus chapter 2 of older women teaching younger women. Boringly normal curriculum the older women teach the younger women. Boringly normal looking at fruitfulness as a good. Boringly normal not remarrying people unbiblically divorced. Are you with me? Boringly normal preaching to the conscience instead of Some of the things the Apostle Paul addressed in his letter to the Corinthians were in response to news he'd heard from, I mean, you feel, all of a sudden, I'm not a shepherd, am I? I'm a lecturer. Boringly normal preaching to the conscience, I could go on and on and on. Boringly normal hospitality on the part of the officers. Nobody can be an officer of this church that doesn't have their home open and their, uh, their, their bows and their kitchen and their deck and their... You know what I'm saying? Always the church has had hospitality. Why? Well, something happens when you eat boringly normal hospitality. Boringly normal love and discipline of the children of the covenant by the members of the church. You go back and read the records of the eldership at the time of Calvin in Geneva. And what you will find is books of the accounts of what the elders required of people who were hitting each other in their marriages, who were committing adultery, who were getting drunk, who were blaspheming, who were going to mass, who were praying to Mary. And it's just hundreds and thousands. 
thousands of pages of records of Calvin and the elders sitting in meetings, admonishing, rebuking, requiring going to sit under sermons as the discipline, requiring them to memorize the Apostles' Creed, you know, just constant care for their congregation. And nobody would have thought of accusing them of being hierarchically authoritarian. <laughs> it's just it's so absurd, you know? So the elders of this church believed, the deacons, the pastors, our wives all believed there needed to be a church that returned to normality, to Protestant normality, and that it was okay if everybody made fun of us. And they believed that it was so important to be a church in town that was like that, that for us immediately... Agreeing on that to divide because some of us wanted to baptize our babies and some wanted to dedicate them. It was like, "Uh uh-uh, ain't going to happen. Do you understand that? We're not going to immediately scandalize the community by showing that we can't get along over the issue of infant baptism. So you can fault it. It is abnormal. It is weird. In church history, it's rarely done. But we believed it was time for the Protestant church to show unity in this community around the boringly normal stuff of church history. And if we had, in order to get that boringly normal unity, to have a weird thing here, you know, a goiter sticking out of the neck, (laughs) okay, we were going to have it. And so here's the goiter sticking out of the neck. Now, I said there are two reasons. One is pastoral, and the second is biblical. Let me give you the biblical reason. Here is our text. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning with verse 10. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, let's stop and look at that for a second. To the married. I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. And remember, we saw a couple weeks ago that that just simply means that he's quoting Jesus. When Jesus was here on earth in flesh, he said that. All right? He talked about divorce and remarriage. And so Paul is saying, these are the Lord's direct instructions. And what are they? To the married, the wife should not leave her husband. And the end of verse 11, the husband should not divorce his wife. And you remember our Lord said that from the beginning it was not that way, for the two shall become one. All right? And then the parenthetical statement in the middle, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And look, anybody that lives knows that you have situations where you have a husband and wife that can't stand each other. There's a couple in this church where, you know, I started counseling them, and one of my elders told me that he'd been counseling them for 15 years already. All right? All their lives, they haven't gotten along. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says that the wife should not leave her husband. The Bible says the husband should not divorce his wife. But the truth is that despite the command of Scripture, you have Christians in a church who leave one another, who divorce one another. 
And what it says here is, if she does leave, in other words, if she breaks the command that the wife should not leave her husband, verse 10, if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And so what you have here is you have, you know, real politic, right? You have here the reality of life together, where somebody who is a confessing Christian, despite the command to not leave her husband, leaves her husband. And this is a concession to that person saying, all right, you left your husband, strike one. No, strike two, you must not divorce him, and you must not remarry. And so if you don't like your wife, if she smells, if your husband stinks, and you decide you're going to leave him, strike one, no strike two, you're not going to divorce him. And we're dealing with Christians here. Do you understand? And so if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Two wrongs don't make a right, right? Two wrongs need to have one taken out and then the first taken out and there's no wrong. So you go back. You don't get remarried, not three. You try to take away number two. Maybe you were wrong in who you married, but once you're married, that's not even a question to think about. All right? Then verse 12, but to the rest I say, not I, I say, not the Lord. So here he's not saying that this is inspired. He's saying, okay, look, Jesus didn't say this, but Jesus is now saying this to you because I'm writing inspired scripture. And so this is me saying it in scripture, all right? But it's not the Lord saying it when he was here on earth. Not I, but I say, not the Lord, that. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Notice the radical egalitarianism of Christianity. You don't realize it. But in history at the time, this was unheard of. It's very clear that in Christ there's neither male nor female. They both have the same obligations, right? There isn't a double standard for husbands and wives in Christ, okay? Neither one of them is to leave an unbeliever who is willing to have them as their husband or wife. Now, you might be sitting there and you might be thinking, well, why on earth would they think they could leave them? And you've got to enter into that at this point if you're going to understand the rest of the text, okay? In the Old Testament, there were very, very clear commands that the people of God were not to marry the pagans. Are you with me? And these commands were at the center of the commands that God gave his covenant people when he brought them up out of Egypt. You can see evidences of this command earlier in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible. But in Judges 3, 5 to 8, we read this. Just incidentally, it says, the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites. Canaanites were the godless. Canaanites were the idolaters, all right? The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. 
Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And so incidentally here, you see God condemning his people marrying not his people. You see him condemning the holy from marrying the profane, the set apart from marrying the common, the normal, the the peculiar from marrying the normal, the covenant people from marrying the non-covenant people. Now, you hear all the words I'm using, right? And you realize that I'm trying to get you to think in terms of the church, the household of faith, the covenant people, the sons of God, the daughters of God, in different ways depending on how the word is used. All right? And so what we see is that in both the Old and New Testament, it is a direct command of God that we, God's people, are not to marry outside of his people. In 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15, the Bible says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Now, the clearest statement of this command not to marry unbelievers is given in Deuteronomy 7. So let's read that. Deuteronomy 7, beginning with verse 1. It's up on the wall. Thank you, men. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. Don't you love that? And when the Lord your God delivers them before you, those that are greater than stronger, all right, and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Think of what marriage is. It's the making of a covenant between a man and a woman lifelong through which children are born. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. What is marriage? It's showing favor. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a what? Holy people. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, 
The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now you know that the whole account of the Israelites being brought out of Egypt is an account of us being brought out of death and sin, right? And what commended the Israelites to God that he rescued them from the slavery? Was it that they walked forward at an altar, that they did the one thing Jesus couldn't do, that they raised their hand in a revival meeting, that they prayed the sinners. What did they do precisely when they were in Egypt? What they did was they luxuriated in the love of their Heavenly Father. And that Heavenly Father completely took the initiative with them. And he chose them precisely because there was nothing they could do. (laughs) They were the fewest They were the smallest. And that's us. There was nothing good you did. You simply responded to the initiative of your Heavenly Father. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. All right? Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. Then it shall come about, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness, which he swore to your forefathers. So what? He's doing this because we are obedient? Yes. Have we earned it by our obedience? No. Our obedience is the necessary fruit that proves our faith. Okay? Then it shall come about because you listen to these judgments and keep them and do them. The Lord your God will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness, which he swore to your forefather. How will he do it? How will he show his loving kindness? How will God bless his people across all history? Well, watch. He will love you and bless you and whoop. Give you birth control. And the intelligence to use it. And older women who will try to keep you from reproducing because they're so earthly wise. And it's so hard to be a mother. And you look at me and you say, that blankety blank. I know what you're thinking. I've heard it. You're furious with me. Look at him. 60-year-old man. What does he know about childbearing? What does he know about motherhood? What does he know about the suffering? Come on, people. What did Jesus know about it? You say, well, he's Jesus. What did Paul know about it? Well, he's Paul. Okay, I get it. I'm just stupid and insensitive and unloving. And I don't have a wife and I don't have a mother I don't have a mother-in-law, and I don't have daughters, and I don't love any of them, and I've never entered into their lives, really. I'm the first man on the face of the world who has ever not loved his wife and his daughters and his mother and mother-in-law. 
Here she is. She's my mother. She's asleep. She isn't. She smiled when I said that. You are fooling me, mud. And that's an affectionate term we all use for her. It's what she prefers. And that woman had eight children, and four of them, or five, five of them are now gone, and we believe in heaven. And her husband's gone. And you know, she lost those kids because of genetic problems, most of them. Cystic fibrosis, two of them. Hemophilia, one and one is, is, is not doing well with hemophilia and hepatitis C. And so you asked my mother, as a young man did, a number of years ago when she was visiting here, he said, you know, knowing about your genetic weaknesses, you and your husband, would you have that many children again, knowing how they're all going to die? And Mud asked a clarifying question, and then she said, yes, of course. So, come on, people. Is she a fool? Is she not know something that you know? And you can't bear to meet my eyes right now. I know you. Because you're faced with the faith of a woman, a mother in Israel. And she has told me personally that if she had it to choose, she would have had more children. And they died, and they died, and they died, and they died. Now what about my mother-in-law? She had ten. When my mother-in-law gets together with her relatives twice a year, especially in the summer, we put up a tent. She's 93, I believe now. Is that right? Or four? Three. She has 28 grandchildren. Taylor's the youngest. So far, she has about 53 great-grandchildren. Every time I meet somebody from China, I parade my family in front of them. I say, in China, every individual carries a phalanx of obligations. But my mother-in-law, she don't carry nobody. She's carried by a hundred. It's more than a hundred of us now. Direct descendants are married. And we're just propagating a godly seed. And again, I'm just quoting Malachi scripture. God makes them one for the propagation of a God we seed. And so what does the Bible say? He will love you and bless you and what? Multiply you. We'll have 85 members under the age of five or under the age of six. He will also bless the fruit of your business, your professional educational degree, your Ph.D., your master's in vocal performance. Poor, poor, poor world. He will bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock and the land which he swore to your forefathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There will be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. And Mother Teresa had many children. The Lord will remove from you all sickness and he will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt which you have known, but he will lay them on all who hate you. You shall consume all the peoples whom the Lord your God will deliver to you. Your eyes shall not pity them. 
nor shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. This is the reason why Christians at the time of, in Corinth would think that they should separate from unbelieving spouses. You see? All of Scripture says, you are not to, let, to marry unbelievers. You are not to let them to corrupt you. You are not even to pity them. And so, of course, the Christians in Corinth, married to unbelievers, thought, I should separate. But now take us back to the text, please. To the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. This is a new thing. Ezra had it another way. But now we're not to divorce them. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Now, I've gotten the stop signal from my dear brother, David Carell. And I'm not going to stop because this just frustrates me at this text. And so you'll have a longer sermon in the first service. But keep going with me and you'll get out of here soon. But I want you to feel how the text moves. All right? The unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. Now, there are three questions we should ask about this text. The first question is, is this saying that the unbelieving husband or the unbelieving wife is made a Christian? Is that what the word sanctified means? By his believing wife or her believing husband. And the answer to that is no. Why? What's clear in the text? The unbelieving husband. (laughs) It can't mean, and nobody has ever argued that what it means is that God transfers an unbeliever into the kingdom of heaven by virtue of the surrogate faith of a believing partner. Right? So the first question is, does a Christian spouse save an unchristian spouse by their faith? And does God transfer that unbelieving spouse into the kingdom of God by virtue of their believing spouse's faith? And the answer is no. So then the second question is, is the unbelieving spouse... Well, let me read it exactly as I wrote it down so that I'm careful on this. Saving faith is personal faith. It is not corporate or familial or marital. We don't morph from death to life through rubbing shoulders or sleeping in a marital bed with God's covenant people. We ourselves must repent and believe in Jesus Christ. No exceptions. But the second question is this. Does this declaration of the Holy Spirit for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through a believing husband, does this declaration of the Holy Spirit mean that the unbelieving spouse is set apart to a certain holiness, a certain otherness, a certain sort of identification or membership or consideration as holy or other or sanctified? We must answer this question, yes. Why? How do we know this? 
Because it's what the Holy Spirit says. The unbelieving husband is sanctified through his believing wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. The Holy Spirit tells us this. And the Holy Spirit goes on to explain to us that we also know it because we look and we see that the children of even a single believing parent, whether father or mother, are also sanctified. See what it says. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. And that word holy has the same root as the words sanctified, sanctified. It's the same meaning. The unbelieving husband and the children are set apart to holiness by their association with a believer, whether as a parent or as a spouse. All right? Believers from the Old Testament would be fearful that association with unbelievers would corrupt them. But believers are not to fear being corrupted by the wickedness of their unbelieving spouse. Rather, they are to claim the promise of God that the influence will now run the other direction. The believing husband will sanctify his unbelieving wife. The believing wife will sanctify her unbelieving husband. This is the promise of God, and the proof is the sanctity, the holiness, the spiritual set-apartness of the believer's child when born and raised in a home where only one of his parents is a believer. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified through a believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. This is the power of God's covenant people over spouses and children. We are not to fear corruption by them in a consummated marriage. We're not to marry them, but when we're married, we are not to fear corruption. God promises to sanctify them through us, both our unbelieving spouse and the children of that marriage given us by that spouse, whether husband or wife. And so the second answer is yes. The first one's no. The second answer is yes. Does this declaration of the Holy Spirit mean that the unbelieving spouse is set apart to a certain holiness? Yes. And the children of that marriage also. But again, remember, God has no grandchildren, only sons and daughters adopted by our Heavenly Father through repentance and saving faith. Personal repentance and saving faith. Individual personal repentance and saving faith. Not baptism. Not church membership, not daily attendance at Mass, not indulgences, not prayers for the dead, not the Lord's Supper, not the faith and prayers of a godly grandmother, not the love and faithfulness of a mother Monica, and not the godliness of your wife. Both unbelieving spouses and children of marriages of one or two believers are conceived in sin and born dead in their trespasses and sins. Okay? What's my proof of that? Now listen. Here's the proof that John Calvin puts in his commentary on this text. He quotes Ephesians 2. And you, writing to believers, were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, 
indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, people, this is the statement of Scripture about us. Listen to Calvin. He says, but how does this sentence harmonize with what Paul teaches us in Ephesians, that all are by nature of wrath, children of wrath, and with David's cry in Psalm 51, behold, I was conceived and sent. And Calvin says, to that I answer, that there is a universal propagation both of sin and condemnation in the seed of Adam. All, therefore, to a man, and that includes woman, all, therefore, to a man, are included in this curse, whether they spring from believers or the ungodly. For not even believers beget children according to the flesh, so that they are regenerated by the Spirit. Now listen, if we could hold on to that, it would go a long way to solving the problems that we have getting along with each other as Baptists and as as paedo-baptists, okay? And so this is the life story in Ephesians 2 of every true full member of the household of faith, the church of the living God. The life story of every man, woman, or child whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You and your children and your unbelieving spouse must be born again or you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Many years ago, Mary Lee and I came down and visited a church in this community to think about becoming the pastor there. And we really did not expect to do anything other than come down and listen and go home. But then, at the end of the visit, we went into the kitchen of the patriarch of that church, married to the matriarch. And in that case, the matriarch was more than the patriarch. And that patriarch was the son of a pastor, a conservative reform pastor from a small town up in Wisconsin. And that man prayed for his church. And when I heard him pray for his church, and it was a church in terrible crisis, lost hundreds of people in the two years before that time, I noticed that he cried, and I noticed that he loved her. And my heart was gaga. From that moment, I knew I was going to that church. It's just, I saw the need. I knew our church didn't need me the way this church did. And I'm sure there was much sin involved in my heart changing at that moment. Mary Lee's heart didn't change at that moment. But he was a godly man. But I heard him once say that he was so happy that he was raised in a home where nobody ever told him he wasn't a Christian. And that really scared me. Because the infants that were baptized here today, you heard it clearly. They have an obligation to respond to the covenant sign. If they don't respond every single time we baptize one, we say they will then come under the discipline of this church. 
And let me tell you, and trust me, it's true. That includes the children of the elders and the pastors of this church. God does not have grandchildren. He is faithful to his covenant to a thousandth generation, but he has not one grandchild. The only thing God has is adopted sons and daughters. And they belong to him, and Jesus Christ is their brother. Okay? Now, you've heard me say, we, every one of us must repent and believe. Baptism doesn't change that a bit. Church membership doesn't change that a bit, right? Now, listen carefully. I have two more things to say. The first one is this. Since when has somebody being a member of this church made them a Christian? Eh? Did you ever hear anybody say in Scripture that somebody being circumcised in the Old Testament made them have circumcised hearts? No. You're going to have a circumcised foreskin and no circumcised heart. You know that the scripture warns against this all the time. So why would we think today that somebody being a member of Clear Note Church in Bloomington or being baptized or coming to the Lord's table or sitting next to you, why would we think that that makes them a Christian? And if you're smart, you'll look at me and you'll say, well, because you elders examined their fruit and came to the conviction they're Christians. And I'd say, okay, so what? You want to just put your life on cruise control? You know, well, the elders told me that must mean that it's right. <laughs> Come on. You can't just date a woman that comes to church here and think she's a Christian. Do you think that because the Bible says in the Old Testament that they were not to marry Canaanites, that that meant that any nincompoop could go out and find any Israelite woman and marry her? Do you get it? What happens in this church all the time is living together under the word of God, under the ministry of the spirit, in the worship of the people, around the Lord's table, around the sacraments, in the natural give and take of exhortations and admonitions and corrections and rebukes. What happens is that the spirit of God divides the people of God into those who are anathema, and who go out from us because they were not of us. And you go, oh, 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 oh. And I say, that's the apostle of love, John, that says, I'm just quoting scripture. They went out from us because they were not of us. And so what you see all the time is you see a Christian wife living with a Christian husband. Christian in the sense that they're baptized to take the Lord's Supper and they're members of this church. And as the years go by, one of them goes up and one of them goes down. And Jesus says, I came to bring a sword. And Jesus says, you must hate your husband and your wife and your children and your parents. And you must love God. Why? Because constantly the Spirit of God is making distinctions between sheep and goats. This is why, the, this is why Augustine said, many sheep without, many wolves within. You can't go on cruise control in this church. Since when have ceremonies been what you trust in? 
must partake of the signs that God has given you. You must be baptized. You must take the Lord's Supper. You must place yourself under the elders. You must have objective, verifiable, visible distinctions. You must love the church. But you must never replace the work of the Holy Spirit with objective signs and with the means of grace. You must never choose a wife from among the women of this church thinking that because she holds membership here or attends here or comes to the Lord's table that you can go unto cruise control. You must live by faith. And we're always trying to replace faith with ceremonies and rituals. And so there comes a time in a marriage where after 10, 15 years of counseling, it's clear that one of the partners is an unbeliever. And it's clear, put it back up, please. If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. And after years of counseling, one of the two Christians, members of the church, taking the words, one of the two Christians is visibly manifested without faith, without fruit, without faith, godless, cursing God harming their children, molesting their stepdaughters in the name of Christ. And it becomes clear. And when that man, that woman, casts off his wife, she's to let him go and she's free to remarry. She's free. He was a member of the church. We've had a number who were deacons of this church. They were excommunicated. What are you going to do? A man's off having sex for years with another woman while living a lie in the midst of this church as an officer of this church. And all of a sudden, God makes it clear. And that wife is what? You see it. She's what? Come on. She's free. She's free. Okay? God has called us to peace. And then a qualification at the end for how do you know, a wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? Remember I said there are three questions. One question is answered what? No. One question is answered yes, right? The third one is answered maybe. <laughs> and I'm going to end with a story about Rita Cuffey. Because you just couldn't preach this sermon without talking about Rita and Jimmy Cuffey. Rita Cuffey was a graduate of Boston Latin School, the best public school in the country. Bus of Greek philosophers in the hallways, marble bus. Then she went to Radcliffe, and she was just a poor, ignorant Italian Roman Catholic from northeast Boston. I forget what her last name was. You remember Palahotzi or Hotzi? Does anybody remember? Real weird last name, Italian. And she went to Radcliffe, and then she decided to get her doctorate in astronomy. So she went to Harvard. As a woman, she was allowed to do her graduate work there. And she met a man named Jimmy Cuffey there. And Jimmy was from out in Wisconsin, and they got sweet on each other. One day she went into the man that owned her fellowship. She'd been granted a fellowship, and she said, I'm not going to use my fellowship any longer. He said, why not? And she said, well... She said, I've met a man who's asked me to marry him, and I want to marry him because I'd rather be at home, in bed, warm with him, than out 
using the telescope in cold at night. Those were her exact words. And years later, when he came to be interviewed for a job here, all the new faculty hires were required by Herman Wells to be, have their sexual histories taken by Alfred Kinsey. And so Alfred Kinsey took her sexual history. When her husband was here to interview, I asked her, well, what did you say to him? And she said, oh, my, I think he found me rather boring. <laughs> the world was not worthy of them. Rita became our dear friend. She and her husband, Jimmy, were in church every Sunday, and Jimmy would always react to the preaching of the word and the reading of it with skepticism. He, after all, was an astronomer. And he'd come out the door, and he'd always have something rude or scoffing to say about the word of God preached every Sunday. And I knew it was a really deep spiritual issue, because one Sunday, instead of preaching, I simply read the Sermon on the Mount from beginning to end. That Sunday was the Sunday Jimmy looked at me and had the most awful godless things to say about the sermon. And so I didn't take it personally. But we loved Jimmy, and we loved Rita. And we had them to our house all the time for birthdays, for Thanksgiving, for whatever occasion. When we took Joseph out to look at MIT, Rita was in the van with us. And she gave us a tour of Boston that that just killed. And we loved her. Well, after I met with her every week, she was my closest friend in Bloomington. And I found out about her life as time went on. I found out that she, every Sunday that they had communion, she would warn her husband not to take the Lord's Supper because he was profaning the table. And she was fearful that God would cause him to get sick or die. The elders of the church would never bar him from the table. His wife did all she could, but he continued to take communion. I also found out that she had been told by God, I don't know how, that her husband would become a Christian. And that one really had me hanging, not because of my position on cessationism. I I was confident that God had said that to her, but I had no faith that it would ever happen. I saw how crusty and skeptical and scornful he was of God and his word. Then I found out that there had been a period of about three years where uh, Jimmy had abandoned his wife and children. I found out that nobody at the church had rebuked him but rather the unbelieving chairman of the astronomy department had gone after him and had rebuked him. And finally, he came home. I found out that he had never asked the forgiveness of his children and his wife for that despicable act. We started at Calvin's reading group, and we started by reading uh, some of the early church council's documents. And Jimmy came with his wife, Rita, about 25 of us, mostly graduate students and some older people. And that went on for a couple of years. But Jimmy came, and he was immediately scoffing at Scripture in that group. And so Steve Berenzi and I met with him and said, you may not come. I didn't have an elder I could ask to do that with me. But Steve Berenzi, a grad student in English literature, came with me and did a wonderful job disciplining Jimmy. And when we got done lovingly explaining, remember, he was a part of my household by that point, and I was a part of his household. (laughs) Trust me. When we said he couldn't come, his response was at the end to look at us and say, well, on my way home, I think I'll stop and rob a bank so that I can be the sinner that you say I am. And so he left. Probably about six months later, he came in one day, set up an appointment, 
and I had a bad conscience. I knew that nobody had ever loved Jimmy to confront him with his sin other than his wife, and that even she hadn't confronted him about the central piece of his sin in his life because it wasn't appropriate for her to do that. But I didn't want to lose Jimmy and Rita as friends, and I especially didn't want to lose Rita. And I felt that if I confronted Jimmy, there was a good chance Rita would leave the church, and I couldn't bear it. I needed her prayer. I needed her love. I needed her counsel. And so Jimmy came in one day, and he had a bunch of the bulletins. And he came in and set them on my desk. And since then, I've become convinced that Jimmy uh, was autistic. Uh, highly functioning autism. And he showed me the bulletins, and every one of the bulletins, he had taken a ruler or a template of some sort and created borders around the bulletin. And he told me people are not comfortable with open-ended pages. They need borders. And so I want you to take one of these graphical designs that I have here, and, and implement it at this church because everybody at this church will rest easier. Where did that come from? <laughs> you know, this is the weirdest thing. He set up an appointment to come in and show me his design. You know, some of them he'd done like this little like sort of Irish crossing. Some had chain links together. Some were just straight lines. I had all kinds of options I could choose from. Well, there are times you just, it's the Kairos. It's the critical moment. And so I said, Jimmy, let me talk to you. So, Jimmy, you remember you said that you you had no sin and that you would rob a bank so you could be guilty of what we said you were guilty of? I said, Jimmy, how dare you defy God? I said, you know very well that you are a wicked man. And I said, when you think of what you've done to your wife and what you did to those poor children that you abandoned, and you dare to sit in this office and say that you have no sin, I said, Jimmy, that is godless. And if you don't repent, God will judge you. You go home to your wife and you confess your sin to her and you plead with her for her forgiveness and you go to God and you plead for his forgiveness. Now, you may think I do that because I enjoy it. I assure you I don't enjoy it. You just sit there and you sweat and you shake and, and you realize that your job at the church is an emeritus professor, renowned around the world, member of every astrophysical and astronomical society. And Rita, godly Rita, saintly Rita. I did it, why? Because I feared God and I loved him. And I had no faith he would go home and do it. I mean, can you imagine? This guy was probably at that time 86, 87 years old. Maybe 83. I'm not sure. Then Rita came in and she said, do you know what Jimmy did this week? He came home and he asked me to forgive him. And then he asked God to forgive him. 
And Rita always traced Jimmy coming to faith to that pathetic, late, wussy pastor who was somewhere in between, not wanting to ruffle the feathers and not wanting to face God, and somehow outsprung some tiny act of faithfulness. You know, that's all our obedience ever is. And, you know, Jimmy became a Christian. God had promised it to Rita. I was faithless. Now, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that then the new church started, and Jimmy was asked to be a member, and the elders approved him. And if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But Jimmy wasn't quite all new. And so he came to a Sunday school class, and they were talking about Scripture, and being Jimmy Cuffey, he began to scorn and to mock Scripture. Well, the elders were caught flat-footed because Jimmy had become a Christian. They didn't know what to do, but we had left a church that would never, ever, 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 ever do discipline. Ever! And so here was the first test. And we failed. We let him say it. We didn't stop him. We went on. We had worship. We all went home. And then there was a meeting that week, and the elders looked at each other, and we said, we failed. And so the next week, the elders met with Jimmy and told Jimmy he could not come to Sunday school anymore because they were not going to allow him to be a scandal to the weaker brothers. And then they went in front of the congregation the next week and asked the forgiveness of the congregation for allowing the word of God, to be defiled by a man in their presence without rebuking him. And do you know something? We thought Rita would stop coming to Sunday. Oh, no, Rita didn't stop coming to Sunday school. She kept coming, but Jimmy wasn't there. But he came to worship. He'd sit in worship even after he became a Christian. He'd be there one row behind Mary Lee. I'd be preaching, and he'd say, When is this going to end? If we sang, lift up your heads, O ye ancient gates, bow before him, love and adore him, you know that chorus? He'd be behind Mary Lee, and Mary Lee would hear him say to his wife, Rita, how many heads do you have? (laughs) (laughs) I once heard him give a lecture to a whole bunch of muckety-mucks from IU that went to that church on how flesh is translucent and and Jesus couldn't shine because he had certain physical properties and how could you sing shine Jesus shine it was at the old East Fork restaurant <laughs> it, was, it was just like it was wacko but he was a Christian and when we disciplined him it did not embitter him and we noticed that he began to not mock scripture do you know a few years later he got a terrible bacterial infection in the hospital. And he was reduced to not being able to speak, not being able to get out of his bed over in the old Bloomington nursing home. And you'd go in to visit them, and there would be Rita sitting and holding Jimmy's hand and stroking it. And she would not stop reading scripture and singing hymns and praying and loving him. And I watched his eyes. I knew him well by then, and I knew that there was nothing that gave him more joy than his wife reading scripture and praying and singing hymns. And I joined with the hymns and the scripture and the prayer. For how do you know, O wife, 
whether you will save your husband. What did Rita do? She saved her husband. Did Rita save her husband? No. The Spirit of God saved her husband. Did Rita save her husband? Yes. So the final verse, it's a story, but it's clear. And so all of you have the, the, the job of applying these things as God, the Holy Spirit, leads you to apply them. There's no difference between Baptists and Presbyterians this, in this church on the necessity of new birth in Christ. Nobody here believes that baptism saves you. We do have a disagreement over whether the baptism should be given on the basis of the faith of a parent or on the basis of the child's profession of faith. We also agree that we should not teach that baptism saves. We also agree that we should not teach that membership saves, that coming to the Lord's side. We believe in repentance and faith. That's what it means to be a Protestant. Okay? I really do apologize to you for going this long, but there's just... Next week, if I'm here, I'll do better, but the elders might decide somebody else is going to preach. <laughs> so that you don't have to live with my lack of discipline. But we're done. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have been merciful to us, giving us true Christian faith. I pray, Lord, that you will forgive me for not using my time better this morning, but that you will, through my sin and weakness, that you will make men and women and boys and girls and grandparents here true Christians, humble under your word, with mouths open to be fed by your spirit, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for our mother in Israel, Rita Cuffey. We thank you for the humility of her professor husband. Father, may there be many mothers in Israel that rise up in this congregation and are examples to us of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.